Ready, Freddy? Be so (laughs) weird if my name was Freddy. That would be strange. I would refuse to call you Freddy and I'd come up with a different name. Would you call me Fred? Um, I think I'd call you Frederick. The fuck? What if that's not even my full name? You'd have to deal, I guess. That's messed up. Yeah. Welcome to Cryptic Chatter. My name's Gwen. My name's Mel. And we are going to tell you about something spooky and about something strange. And every time I say my name's Mel, it sounds like my name smell. My name smell. Just like Chris Pratt. Crisp rat. Crisp rat. Crisp. I think Hermes has one of your socks. One of my socks? Where did he get it from? It was a gay little short gray sock. (laughs) Gay little short gray sock. It was probably mine, yeah. Yeah, you wear the really short socks because you're weird. I do. No, it's because they're comfortable. I don't like when you can see your socks above shoes. Or like, I think it's fine for everybody else, but I don't like when I can see my socks above my shoes. Strange behavior. Yeah, maybe it's a neurodivergent thing. I don't know. (laughs) We we all have our things, okay, Mel? No need to judge me about mine. (laughs) Uh, I guess I shouldn't judge. Yeah. Alrighty, I've got a good one for you. Um, Oh my goodness. I know that you are at least vaguely familiar with the case. But today... Yeah, I'm going to be telling you about uh, some identical twins. Their names are June and Jennifer Gibbons. Ring any bells? Yes, Yes, we ring a few bells. We're going to be talking about the silent twins today. (laughs) They are, it's, it's kind of a crazy story. Nothing like outwardly supernatural happens in it, but it's just like some of the things that go on are so weird. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about the Silent Twins. So, they are identical twins, June Allison Gibson and Jennifer Lorraine Gibson. Uh, They lived in Great Britain, and for most of their lives, they refused to communicate to anyone other than their twin, Uh, you know, which obviously led to problems uh, like emotional exile, institutionalization, uh, and then, like, the moniker, the Silent Twins. Imagine. Imagine being silent. Couldn't be me. (laughs) <laughs> is that what you're gonna say because like I yeah could never... we're two people who formed a podcast i think that's pretty obvious i feel like i talk too much all of the time and being silent just like wouldn't be wouldn't do it for me yeah <laughs> i have to gab i have to it's like a medical I used condition to be a quiet kid but i don't know <laughs> what happened see i feel like i'm really quiet with people i don't know but then when it's somebody i know i just like do not shut up ever I'm so, aware. Yeah. It's okay. Don't need to sound so sad about it. Jeez. <laughs> it's okay. I gab a lot too, and you listen. So, yeah. And then sometimes you don't, and you go, What did you just say to me? And I go, Yeah. Sometimes I react, I and know. then I'm like, I'm focused on something else, and I react to what you're saying. But then I'm like, I just reacted to something. What was it? Mel, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your subconscious was paying attention, but you were. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Continue telling me about these silly silent twins. These silly silent twins. <laughs> All right. Um. So they were born at a Royal Air Force hospital in Yemen on April 11th, 1963. Um. Their dad was in the Royal Air Force. So, you know, 
that's why. <laughs> uh, so June was the older twin, born at 8, 10 a.m. and Jennifer at 8, 20. Uh, their parents are from the Barbados. Um, and then shortly after the birth of the twins, the family was part of a post-war migratory wave of island dwellers who were carried on ships to the UK. Um, there was a name for this generation. I forgot to write it down. I don't know. I don't recall. <laughs> there is a name for it if anyone's interested and wants to Google it, though. <laughs> um, and then so the family struggled to adapt to the culture in the UK, mostly because of racist white people. Um, you know, they were usually like othered by the white British people. And so like had a hard time fitting in. <laughs> yeah, that's how it usually goes. Yeah. Uh, so the twins actually had issues with speaking even before they started to actively like not speak. Uh, by the time they started school, they were only speaking in really like short sentences, maybe five to six words long. Uh, they would talk and make sounds in the home at this point. So they weren't like choosing to be quiet at this point, but they had some sort of like speech impediment. Uh, so starting at age eight to nine, the girls were starting to get like severely bullied for their issues with speech and also um, big theme in this one for their skin color. Oh, wow. British yeah. people are racist. Yeah, they are. Oh, I would have never guessed. Me neither. Oh, also, I'll insert this before when I edit. I will put this before the story. But trigger warnings. Um, racism. <laughs> obviously because we're talking about two black girls in fucking britain so racism there is mentions of statutory rape as well as eating disorders i believe that is it we'll see yeah so the girls were in school frequently called names and like had their hair pulled by the other children so they were just like severely bullied for like no reason at all um, so it was at this point um, that they made a pact to only speak with each other. So at like this age, eight to nine. Uh, so they'd only speak in their upstairs bedroom. They stopped talking to family at this point. Um, and this was actually said by June in an interview that it was at ages eight to nine ish. Other sources say that the pact was made at age three. So I don't know where they got that information from. But one of the sisters said it was age eight to nine. So their family members could hear them speaking in their room, but they couldn't actually understand what they were saying. Uh, they said it was like they had their own language, which later when they went to, I believe she was a speech therapist, she found out it was a sped up version of English uh, mixed with Barbadian slang. So oh. they just, yeah, yeah, they just like made their own little language out of English they just and said, slang. I'm going to speak real fast. I'm going to speak real fast. I'm going to speak English, but I'm also going to throw in that slang that mom and dad use around their house because, you know, they were from the Barbados. Yeah. So, yeah, made their own little uh, dialect. Uh, and then also at this time, the girls started refusing to read or write in school and they would start mirroring each other's actions. So at one point, is... sorry, I said I was going to say that is so I hate when twins are mirroring weird. each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the bullying got so bad at one point that the school actually made the girls start walking home like five minutes before the school let out in hopes that like the other kids wouldn't be able to catch up with them and like bother them. So I guess like somebody was talking about it. I 
I have this problem where I don't write things down. <laughs> so I don't remember who it was, but they were like, yeah, like five minutes out before school is let out, you would just see these two girls, like one after the other, like arms and legs swinging in unison, like walking home. And I'm like, ew, that's so gross. Like they don't deserve to be bullied for it, but it's no, but it's weird. <laughs> it's a little twins strange. are already so strange to me when they do weird things or their parents make them too similar it freaks me out yeah identical twins are something else because like you were supposed to be one and then you split into two in the womb why did you do that <laughs> why why what was the point <laughs> uh so then in 1976 john Rees, who is a school medical officer came to their school to vaccinate the children um he found the girls to be really strange described them as like in a trance nearly lifeless and doll-like um he said that neither of them reacted to the needle when they were getting I just lost my spot <laughs> neither of them reacted to the needle when they were getting vaccinated and he was like yeah they were just like standing there lifeless in front of me just like accepting this needle when most kids you know are a little bit squeamish about them at first um so he found it really strange he talked to the principal about it and the principal's like well they're not causing any problems and the guy was like John Reese was like well but like obviously there's something going on <laughs> so he referred them to evan davies uh evan davies was a consultant child psychiatrist for the region he tried to talk to the twins but they wouldn't respond and he also couldn't tell them apart um so he then referred them to a woman named Anne treharn i believe is how you pronounce it it's t-r-e-h-r oh my god t-r-e-h-a-r-n-e treharn yeah i think treharn sounds yeah so Anne Treharn was the chief speech therapist at Haverford West's With Withybush Hospital. <laughs> These fucking British names, Withybush Hospital. <laughs> um, so the girls almost never spoke to each other in front of her, but they would agree to read aloud on tape after she left the room. And so this is kind of how she discovered their like secret language and figured out what it was by, by listening to these tapes. Um Treyharn actually felt that June wanted to speak to her, but was stopped by eye signals from Jennifer and thought that June was, quote, possessed by her twin. Oh. Yeah. So uh, we start to see here that Jennifer's a little bit more of like the dominant personality in this situation. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then the girls were then transferred to the Eastgate Center for Special Education in Pembroke. And then when they were 14, they decided, like, not the girls, the adults around them, decided to separate them with hopes that they'd be able to develop their own personalities, you know, kind of like get over the not talking thing. So June was sent to St. David's Adolescent Unit 30 miles away. Um, so when they were told that this was going to happen, they had like an extreme reaction. They started screaming and hitting each other and had to be forcefully separated um they decided to talk like very briefly just long enough to phone the staff members at eastgate and promise to speak if they could stay together uh they didn't follow through though so the separation was carried out in march 1978 they both fell into despair june stopped moving almost entirely that went on for a while and then june was sent back to eastgate because they were like like this is obviously not working like the girls are I... just like catatonic at this point who would even think that's a good idea like yeah I've, i'm not like <laughs> entirely versed on like developmental psychology like i'm i took like one course or whatever mm -hmm. but like that like this seems like some form of neurodivergency yeah and i feel like it makes sense to not 
separate them completely. Shock the system of someone who's neurodivergent. It doesn't do like what you want it to do. Yeah, I could see like potentially putting them in different classrooms so that they were like still close to each other, but you know, maybe had a little personal space. But like sending her to a school that's 30 miles away after like 10 years of them only talking to each other, like that's obviously going to cause some sort of issue. (sighs) Yeah. So June was sent back to Eastgate. They felt better about it. Uh, And then they both left school in the winter of 1979. After this incident of them being separated, the twins no longer went downstairs for meals and spoke to nobody in their family, uh, except for occasionally, very occasionally, their younger sister, Rosie. So it was at this point in time that they started communicating with their parents by letter. Um, So one example was a letter they wrote was, quote, we want to see Top of the Pops tonight at 7 p.m. Please leave living room door open. So they'd like sit in their open doorway and look towards the living room where they had their parents leave the door open so that they could watch the TV from their room. (laughs) They were like, we don't even want to sit in the living room with you guys. (laughs) They said, we'll sit up here and look scary. Yeah. And watch the TV. Yeah. Uh, So the girls were also very religious. And so I guess at this point, June says that they'd quote, kneel down by the bed and ask God to forgive our sins. We'd open the Bible and start chanting from it and pray like mad. We pray to him not to let us hurt our family by ignoring them, to give us strength to talk to our mother, our father. We couldn't do it. Hard it was. Too hard. So, like, they wanted to talk to their family. (laughs) Just for some reason, they, like, couldn't. You know, there was something, like, psychologically, like, holding them back from talking to their family. And so they'd pray for forgiveness about it. And it's unfortunate. That's sad. Yeah. So it's not like they're just like, we are intentionally like trying to hurt our family by not, not talking to them and ignoring them. Like, they wanted to talk to them. They didn't want to hurt them, but they just like couldn't. So in 1979, their mom, uh, whose name is Gloria, by the way, I don't think I mentioned that early on. Her name's Gloria. Uh, she gave them each a diary with a lock, and they both began to keep detailed accounts of their day to day lives and thoughts. And so I. Once again, didn't write it down. <laughs> but one source was saying that they would write like thousands and thousands of words per day. So they were like, just, they were really writing, like blowing through these fucking diaries. So in their diaries, um, over the years, both increasingly reported fear of the other. So they were just like scared of each other. And then it's clear through the writings that June was more fearful of Jennifer and that Jennifer was like the dominant personality in the relationship. After getting these diaries and started, and like when they started writing, they decided they wanted to become authors and they pooled their money together to enroll in a creative writing course, uh, register as one person. And so this wasn't an in, in-person in course, it was like done through the mail. So they registered as one student and did this like course in their bedroom that they had mailed to them. Uh, strange that they registered as one person. Yeah, well, because they only had really limited funds. Like, they weren't working at this point. Mm. They weren't talking to anybody. So I think it was, like, some sort of small government stipend that they were receiving. Um, Okay. Yeah, and so they pooled their money together, and they could afford to register as one person. So they just registered as one person and, like, called it a day. So January 1980, June began writing a novel called The Pepsi-Cola Addict, um, which... Yeah. Um, so he like drinks a lot of Pepsi Cola, but also it details how a teenage boy is seduced by his teacher, joins a gang, goes to prison, and then like eventually overdoses. 
Um, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like a really lighthearted story, you know, about Pepsi Cola. He's so loud. He's literally just out there just screaming at nothing. Oh, and now he's going to come back inside. Oh. Little guy just wants to be heard. Okay, he has been given a distraction. Excellent. Okay, welcome back. Thank you. Um, so Jennifer wrote at the same around the same time, like January 1980, Jennifer wrote two novels in the matter of weeks. So the first one was called The Pugilist, which was about a boy with heart failure, and his father was a surgeon. So an attempt to save the boy's life, um, the father implants into his son the heart of their pug. <laughs> except for something goes horribly like horrifically wrong um and like the soul of their dog is also implanted into the sun and then like the pug tries to take revenge i don't know oh Crazy my story. god yeah i'd love to read it i don't know if it's like available but i'd love to read it though she also wrote one called discomania which is about a group of youths who are controlled by their quote need for a disco beat <laughs> And there's lots of, like, violence and murder. So she's just, like, really writing. They're both just really writing. Yeah. Re- kind of, like, quite dark stories. <laughs> really, though. Yeah. So June's novel was actually published by a vanity press. So uh, they pooled their money together again to self-publish June's book. Uh, Jennifer pursued legitimate presses but was rejected. They didn't want The Pugilist or Discomania, unfortunately. I want the Pugilist. I would love to read the Pugilist. I don't know if it's like available out there. I read in a couple places that like, because there's like a movie that came out about these girls, I think like last year, maybe two years ago. So like 2022, 2023. And so they were publishing some of their novels as like, a look, guys, there's a movie and now you can read their novels, too. I don't know if the Pugilist made the cut, though. It so, should have. That, it should that have. is a gonna, million dollar idea. I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> So when they were 18, they started to have an obsession with a former classmate. Classmate, His last name was Kennedy. Um, there was a first name in the article, but it was like a pseudonym because of privacy. So mm-hmm. also, he's not that important to the story. So just last name Kennedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he's a former classmate who was like, kind of nice to them he was an american boy who had defended them against their other classmates so they got obsessed with him by the time they found his address though he had moved back to philadelphia his the rest of his family was still there so like his parents and he had also had like three younger brothers still in wales uh i will give them their pseudonyms (laughs) because they're a little bit more important uh so there was jerry who was the oldest wayne who was the middle and carl who was the youngest so April 1981, they took a taxi to the Kennedy family home. The house was empty, but unlocked. So they went in. <laughs> oh, just oh. yeah, went into this house. Um, what they... is with people and unlocked door means I'm allowed in? That's not an invitation, guys. <laughs> That's not an invitation. I don't understand people who don't lock their doors. Like if I'm, I lock my door. If I come home, I lock my door. If I leave, I lock my door. My door is locked. You cannot come in. Anyways, so after they break in, but not actually break in because the door was unlocked, 
<laughs> they made peanut butter sandwiches, broke a door, looked at the boys' clothes, and then also like a picture of Hawaii that they had hanging on the wall. So they were just like chilling. Um, the dad and stepmom came home and caught the twins like fleeing, trying to leave, but they felt sorry for them when they realized that they couldn't slash wouldn't speak. And so they just like let them go. So following the incident of their first visit to the house, the twins continued to spend all of their money taking cabs to the boy's house, uh, where they eventually met the younger Kennedy sons and began seeing them regularly. So it would take the girls up to three hours to get ready to go see the boys. So they'd get like really done up to go see them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like makeup. In one of the interviews, she was like, yeah, we'd like put on our makeup and our like tight, short skirts, just like get really done up to see them. And I'm like, okay, girl, get it. <laughs> okay um yeah how old were these boys um the oldest son was older than them the middle son was about their age and then the younger son is younger than them and they're about 18 at this point okay yeah 18 or 19 um okay. yeah so at this point they also started drinking and doing drugs they felt that they needed like to drink like they needed whiskey specifically to be able to speak to the boys uh they also started sniffing glue and lighter fluid hermes is upset about that. Like, why would you do that <laughs> why would you sniff glue i'm also just like how how do you sniff lighter fluid do you just like you can tell I, I don't know shit about fucking getting high because oh my god you can get bottles of it Okay, so you just like oh, you just like squish the fumes into your face. Yeah, you would I was just like, sniff are the they, fumes. I was just like, are they like putting lighter fluid on the table and just like snorting it up? Like, what is going on? <laughs> How do you think people sniff glue, Glenn? I don't know. I don't know how I thought that happened, but it makes more sense now that I know it's the fumes. Listen, yeah, I have never. I, <laughs> I hadn't considered. <laughs> This is just like the fucking guns. How many guns are shipped? <laughs> this week on Gwen being a dumbass. <laughs> um, so Wing, the son closest to their age, who has the middle son, would drink and do drugs with them, but wasn't interested in anything more than that. Like he was okay with hanging out, but like didn't have any like romantic or sexual interest. Uh, the youngest son, Carl, was fourteen at the time, and he was very interested. So, <laughs> oh, Carl. Yeah. So once again, um, trigger warning for statutory rape. So June 1981, Jennifer writes in her diary about losing her virginity to Carl Kennedy in a church while June watched. 13 days later, June lost her virginity to Carl in the Kennedy family's barn. And did Jennifer watch? I assume she did. My source didn't say, but they always like were together. Another just so like, insane. Yeah. Another kind of weird fact is that they were like saying the same things to Carl while losing their virginities to him. And so Ew. once again, I did not write it down, but I'm like mentally scarred by reading it. And one of them was something about being like, I want to have your baby. Oh so, they were both just telling this 14-year-old that they wanted to get impregnated by him and have his baby and again they were like 18 or 19 at this point so it's just like really fucking oh, gross girls that's yeah. illegal yeah um he was like the only one who showed them any attention so they're like super into him and it was like a whole thing um 
But despite being ignored, insulted, and sometimes even beaten up by the boys, the girls had a really great summer. They remember it fondly. But then at the end of the summer, the boys left back to America. Uh, the girls were, like, distraught about it. I had read somewhere that they asked to, like, keep tokens of their time with the boys. And one of them gave them, like, a dirty shirt or a sock or something. So, just uh, lovely American boys. I really hope it was a dirty sock, because that'd just be fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, there was some... One of them gave them, like, a dirty article of clothing. It was, like, either a shirt or a sock. And then one of... Th- the other ones gave them something else but i can't remember what it was and once again i didn't write it down because i was like i need to keep this concise but we're literally complete opposites i get so (laughs) scared of not writing things down yeah see i usually just write down the big facts and then i'm like if there's anything interesting i'll remember it (laughs) but then i like (laughs) don't remember it exactly (laughs) it's a whole thing end of the summer boys left back to america the girls are sad it's now fall 1981 so they were lonely again and began to take it out on themselves. So trigger warning for eating disorders. Uh, they developed a binge eating disorder, which they detail in their diaries. So Jennifer at one point quoted in her diary says, I must be at peace with myself. I will want death if I have no peace. And who will cry at my funeral? Teenager dies from diet binge life. Um, and then June had written, I loathe food, which destroys my soul, my face, my body. Yet I go on eating out of duty, out of weariness. I bite into the body of my very enemy. And as I chew, my food will win. It can take dominion over my flesh, making me corrupt and depraved, exposing me to plumpness of flesh, a fattening of the heart, over healthy, rarely satisfied. So they were just like miserable and lonely and developed an eating disorder about it. This, you know was what they started spending all their money on. So first it was writing, then it was like going to visit these boys and now it's food. So they just like really lacked in proper coping mechanisms for everything that was going on. At this point, they also tried to join a local gang, but they were rejected. The gang was like, no, go home. What are you doing? So they began on their own, stealing, ringing people's doorbells repeatedly, breaking into buildings, smashing windows, drawing graffiti, and tried to break a payphone at one point. So they were just like doing whatever petty crimes. Keyword is tried. Yeah, they tried to break a payphone. I don't think they were successful. <laughs> um, so then after this, they became arsonists and burned down oh. multiple buildings. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, so there was multiple buildings, but I'm just going to tell you about like the most important one. Uh, November 8th, 1981, they smashed a window at Pembroke Technical College. A policeman who was on duty in the area heard the smash, uh, called for backup, and caught them lighting a fire. So they were arrested, their room was searched, their diaries, uh, which detailed all of their crimes, were found. Two days later, they were sent to, once again, another lovely British name, Puckle Church Remand Center. (laughs) Puckle Church Remand Center. Damn British. (laughs) They really got some names. Um, So that was 10 miles from Bristol, and they stayed there for seven months. During that seven months, they were confined together and became tormented by each other, uh, and began to desire each other's deaths. So they had their diaries, not the ones that they, I assume anyways, not the ones that they were writing about their crimes in, but they they were given writing utensils. And so they were writing about how they were like suffocated by each other and they wanted the other one dead. And like, I don't know why they put them in the same cell at this point. If they're like. Yeah. At least like once they realized, oh, they're fucking like, they're yeah. mad at each other. 
So spring 1982, psychiatrist William Spry was enlisted by the twins' defense lawyer. They initially refused to speak with him, then would, like, start to, like, murmur to him on the phone, and then agreed to speak to him face-to-face. Um, when they eventually got around to the face-to-face meeting, they began attacking each other, just casually, you know, and oh. a nurse had to separate them. Great. Yeah. So William diagnosed them with having a psychopathic personality disorder and proposed sending them to Broadmoor, which is a maximum security hospital for the criminally insane. So their trial was in May 1982. They pled guilty and were ordered to be detained at Broadmoor indefinitely. Sorry, I need a sip of water. Oh my goodness, she's talking too much. Yeah, I think I'm also talking too fast, but... (laughs) I understand you, but... That's good. I also talk really fast, so. I've always talked really fast. Like, even when I was a kid, I'd give, like, school presentations or I was in the play in, like, third grade. And the teachers were always like, slow down, slow down. And I'm like, this is just how I talk. If you don't understand, then that's your own problem. (laughs) My least favorite was speeches because I would practice at home and I would get them to, like, the three minute or whatever it was. Yeah, three to five minutes. Yeah, but then when I presented them, it'd be, like, two minutes and then the teacher yeah. would be like, you didn't meet the requirements. And I'd be like, you, just stop. Yeah. Leave me alone, okay? Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Maybe you know we formed our sped up <laughs> English our language. Sped up English language. <laughs> we need to start throwing some slang in there from like another culture. <laughs> the Scottish have any slang? I feel like they're the only ones who we can use without being like offensive. Because um, you are mostly Scottish and I'm a little bit Scottish. Uh, I don't know. We could start saying bangers and mash. Bangers and mash. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> I'm going to start referring start saying... to English people, English ladies as Sassanic. We could start, um, whenever something's small, we could call it we. We could call it we. Didn't your grandparents have a dog or a cat or something named Wean? Yes, they did. That's um, so sweet. She was the runt of the litter, so they named her she, Wean. She was the Wean. That's they so also um, had a dog named Moku. I Mo don't Ku. know what that was from, but... It sounds Scottish. It also sounds, sounds Scottish, yeah. So. <laughs> We're just going to walk around saying Moku and Wean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Perfect. <laughs> Uh, so after arriving at the hospital, June fell into a deep depression and, oh, you know what? Here's another trigger warning. Suicide. Huh? Um, oh, attempted. Great. Yeah. I, th- I feel like I'm going to have to record a little warnings after and just like make the full list. Um, <laughs> but she attempted suicide a few weeks after arriving at the hospital. Um, so some other things that happened in the hospital jennifer attacked a nurse at one point uh they were put in separate wards and denied access to each other uh june didn't speak for a month and later would respond to questions not with her voice but with an eerie smile oh (laughs) just a little gross jennifer was not understood when she tried to communicate both were given various antipsychotic medications um while they were in there one would eat one day while the other did not and then the next day they'd switch so only one was eating per day and they were in like separate words so i don't know how they plan this um also oh while they're God. in separate wards nurses would find them in identical poses even though you know they were in cells on the opposite end of the hospital i don't, so like I don't know that. they have some strange little twin connection going on that just gives me the heebie-jeebies 
I don't <laughs> like that at all. No, no. Sorry to all the twins out there, but I don't. See, this is what I mean by, like, there's nothing, like, super, like, supernatural about this story, but it's just, like, weird and off-putting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, the twins were in the hospital for 12 years. The doctors and social workers would review their case every two years and kept just kept saying that they needed a couple more years a couple more years um every single time they reviewed the case it was like oh they just need a couple more years um and this went on for 12 years so jennifer would be overcome with despair um and when they were put in the same ward to try to like make them feel better they would become violent with each other once again just like hitting and scratching and just like being awful to each other but then when people tried to separate them they would like apologize profusely to each other and become upset and they'd like try to like kiss and make up but then as soon as you put them back together they'd like attack each other again they really said we want to be with each other but by god do we drive each other crazy i feel like that's like you and me sometimes (laughs) yeah we are opposite neurodivergence so sometimes (laughs) it's just we clash so severely i'm like mel's the only one that gets me but also mel irritates me like no other can (laughs) (laughs) you make me want to kill myself but also, I'd kill myself if you yeah. left me. Yeah. So. You know what? At least we don't physically attack each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next step. Next step. No, I feel like we're pretty good with it, though. Like, if we are starting to irritate each other, we usually separate ourselves. So. Yeah. We separate yeah. ourselves or the one that's doing the irritating goes, um, are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? Please don't be mad at me. Oh, my God. I didn't mean to make you mad. so a reporter for the london sunday times named marjorie wallace was alerted to the case uh the parents of the girls gave her their diaries and she went to visit them so after conversing with them about their writings she became friends with them so they were like really interested in talking to somebody about their writings they were always looking for like advice um asking if their writings were good and so that's how she kind of like got them to open up so from reading their diaries um Marjorie did not think that the girls were psychotic and became their most vocal advocate and the chief custodian of their biographies. So she was like, let these girls out of the psych ward, stop giving them antipsychotic drugs because they're not psychotic. So the girls were eventually released from Broadmoor on the morning of March 9th, 1993. They were being sent to a max, sorry, not a maximum. They were being sent from a maximum security to a minimum security institution called Caswell Clinic. So a couple weeks before this transfer, Jennifer was telling Wallace that she was going to die. And so I guess, the yeah, when Wallace was asking about it, the girls said that they decided that since they could not bear living together or apart, that one of them must die so the other could live. And they decided that Jennifer should die because she was the more mentally ill uh, and June was more outgoing and strong. So on the bus that morning, Jennifer rested her head against June's shoulder, kind of like had a little snuggle, and said, at long last, we're out. And then immediately slipped into a coma. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Me when I just put myself in a coma. Yeah. So on the car ride to this other institution, they didn't stop to get her help or anything. They just, like, kept driving. Um, And 12 hours after slipping into the coma, she passed away. When they did the autopsy, they found that her heart had been weakened by an undiagnosed inflammation, and they thought that it maybe had to do with the antipsychotics that she was on. But when they, like, tested June, June was on the same doses of the same medications, and she was, like, completely fine. So they really aren't sure what exactly happened. But, you know, 
they decided Jennifer had to die and then Jennifer died. So Wallace visited June a few days later. And while she was like obviously grieving over her sister, she was also like a new person, just like super chatty, super talkative, super like normal, nothing at all like she was before. She really said, now that she's gone, I'm normal again. Yeah. I can gab. I can gab. Yeah. So June was released from Caswell a year after Jennifer's death. Uh, She takes medications every day. She's able to talk. Every Tuesday, she visits her sister's grave. Uh, She also now goes by Allison, which is her middle name, and says uh, it's because she had too much bad luck while living under her first name. She's also stopped writing, just said as she gets older she wants to write less so she's like a completely new person mm-hmm. and that is the that is the story of the silent twins um i'm gonna willingly put myself in a coma yeah i don't know what happened there they were like okay jennifer has to die it has to be jennifer and then she somehow slipped into a coma and died so strange uh, I have a picture of the girls and their kids that I'm going to put on the site. Um, and then I'll also put my sources there as well. This is so epic. Yeah. That's a wild one. And yeah. it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm so uncomfy. I already don't want children, but the risk of having <laughs> twins yeah. makes it worse. I just, once again, I'm going to repeat myself earlier. Identical twins are so weird because that is like one embryo that split into two like that was supposed to be one baby and now it's two how'd that happen at least i had the decency to like eat my twin in the womb you know (laughs) yeah do you know (laughs) if yours was identical or fraternal i do not know wow you said let me reabsorb myself (laughs) i said oh where'd that piece of me go you said why am i half the size i was before karma got me because i was born without a heartbeat so <laughs> i'm karma thinking quick i'm thinking about i'm not gonna say her name just for the you know sake of her privacy but yeah. i'm thinking about that girl in our classroom in like sixth grade who was like i was born with a broken leg and that is worse than you being born without a heartbeat i like, just it baffles karma? me to this day because ma'am 99.9 percent. i don't know the actual statistic but a lot of stillborn babies yeah are just dead like that's like they it wasn't guaranteed that you were going to be like revived i don't care about your broken leg you were dead and she had a broken leg and that's worse apparently so girl if you're listening to this what the fuck (laughs) i'm literally a zombie but her legs were bad (laughs) her leg was broken and she's like, I, I want to put it out there. She's like completely fine. She participated in like all sorts of sports. She would like to dance and all that stuff. So like her legs healed and she was okay. It didn't leave her like with any like lifelong issues. Yeah. <laughs> like she was, she was fine. Yeah. Me on the other hand, I'm not fine, but that has nothing to do with the fact that I was born without a heartbeat. Well, maybe it was the lack of oxygen to your brain. It really messed you up. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, probably. <laughs> probably and i feel like that's something that my mother's told me before oh yeah (laughs) which is terrible i am just teasing i'm just teasing (laughs) no it's okay i'm trying to find an explanation for why i am the way i am and maybe that is it (laughs) all right mal do you have a story for me what if i just said no what if i was like no 
then I'd be like, okay, guys, so our website is now, and then I'd do our whole <laughs> outro thing, call it a day. <laughs> I, I do have a story for you. Yay. This is the first time it's going to be a surprise. Whoa. Um, This is another Canadian story. Oh my goodness. It's actually considered one of the most grisly, like, murders in Canadian history. Oh. Um, so yeah Yay. buckle your seatbelts folks buckle your seatbelts is honest i maybe it's just i've been desensitized i don't think it's that bad you know what? <laughs> i've been listening to so much like true crime paranormal podcast right now that like none of this I've, yeah like i've desensitized myself to it so like as much as like criminal minds is propaganda <laughs> i love yeah. it and so like i'm just like so whatever yeah um that being said, they, they are people and it's still sad. Yes. Um, my little content warnings for everybody. We've got infanticide. Oh, baby which, killing. Yes. Um, we also have like dismembered bodies. I know that that can be uncomfortable. Um, Mal doesn't like dismembered feet. So if anyone ever has a story about dismembered feet. Don't get me started. Send it Mal's way. Achilles tendons are like... <laughs> the worst i hate it um anyways i think that is it for mine i don't think that there is really much else okay. other than that so just like infanticide um, and dismembered bodies yeah okay other than that like there's like brief suggestions about like controlling parents but like mm -hmm. the no usual things that anything. go along with murder and bad family yeah. situations yeah basically um, so I'm going to be telling the fun story of Evelyn Dick. The name Prepare rings a bell, but I don't know any details. Prepare yourself to hear the word Dick three million times. I'm so excited. <sighs> I'm not. Guys, I need <laughs> you to know my my girlfriend left her Oreo cakesters at my house and they've been here for a couple weeks and I'm like looking at them right now. See what if you eat them and then before she comes over we go and get more see but i i don't want to go out to the store because <laughs> i don't want to go she's left them here for like three weeks and she's like oh they're for a snack at your house and i'm like if you leave them here i'm gonna eat them <laughs> at this point it's her fault if they're gone if she doesn't eat them tonight then they're mine <laughs> anyway sorry continue with evelyn dick i was just they're staring at me it's okay. Now I'm thinking about the fact that I have no snacks, but oh, I also no. have no money. Oh no. I'm it's it's a depressing life. It's okay. Um, we'll we'll get paid in a couple days. Maybe we'll get that tax return in. You can have all the snacks you want. But I can't. I'm in too much debt. Oh. You can have a normal amount of snacks from the grocery store. Uh, anyways, out of my depressing life and into <laughs> Evelyn's. Um, so Evelyn was born Evelyn McLean. Uh, she was born on October 13th, 1920 in Beamsville, Ontario. Not Beamsville. Uh, not Beamsville. Oh, Jesse, wait. There's worse than Beamsville. Literally us, anytime in Ontario fucking place is mentioned, we're like, not that place. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> uh, Evelyn was the only child of Scottish immigrants Donald and Alexandra McLean. Um, the year after Evelyn's birth, the family moved to Hamilton, Ontario. Yay! No, you know how I feel about Hamilton. 
Oh, Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton was the closest city to me growing up, and so I just have such beef with it. I have mixed feelings. Like I don't like it, but also you're probably gonna have to live there someday. Oh, don't tell them that. Oh, sorry. Not yet though. Don't so triangulate me. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Hermes is making me rub his belly, and he's whining about it. Whole <laughs> belly rubs. Um, I have to go pee, so I'm gonna go pee. Okay. Um. Elevator music. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. Elevator music. I'm pissing. Pissing sounds. <laughs> I'll insert them. <laughs> Just insert like someone frying chicken. Okay. Um back to what I was saying. Now you're uh, singing. <laughs> yeah. Uh so Evelyn as we said born in 1920, born to Donald and Alexandra McLean. Um Evelyn's family life was quite unpleasant as her father was a known alcoholic and her mother was known to have a very short temper um and be quite oh. controlling. Not good. Uh, no, never good. Uh, her parents often spent time apart. Uh, their relationship was a whole different unpleasant thing in itself. Um, Evelyn was often kept within her home as her mother believed uh, her to be too fragile to play outside with uh, other children. Oh. So she wasn't very socialized as a child. Um the family also lived far beyond their means. Evelyn's parents even moved Evelyn from a public school to the Loretto Academy, a private Catholic school for girls. Um, Donald McLean, her father, originally worked at the Hamilton Street Railway as a streetcar driver. However, he received a promotion that provided him with an office job that allowed him access to the company's vault. Um, ah, I think I see yes. where this is going. <laughs> So, in order to allow the family to continue living their lavish life, Donald began stealing from the vault. Wonderful. Thievery. Starting off great. Um, Is it a big corporation? Because if it's a big corporation, it's allowed. Yeah, well, it's the Hamilton Street <laughs> Railway. So, it was a big corporation then. I'm not sure about now. For legal reasons, that is a joke. Don't steal from your workplace. Don't steal from your workplace. But or any also... other big corporations. Major corporations don't suffer when you steal from them. Ah, that was a joke. <laughs> Just kidding. Ha ha. Ha As Evelyn grew up, she was encouraged by her parents to use her good looks to entice men into buying her expensive gifts, such as jewelry. Um, Evelyn began attending lavish parties and seducing multiple different wealthy Hamilton men. So Hamilton men are wealthy back in these days? Back in these days, they were. Hamilton was actually a very, like... Prestigious. Imagine, yeah, like, town. imagine your stereotypical, like, 1920s... Was it, like, New York? Prestigious. Yeah, like, kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> but like You said Ontario. 1920s, and I'm just imagining, like, flapper dresses now. Yeah, basically. Basically. Um, so I'll cool. upload, like, photos. Um, like, uh, I'll give Gwen some photos, but... It, like it's very stereotypical like even just seeing what sh like she wore yeah just we'll, we'll put a photo of evelyn in the in the fancy clothes from the time 
Uh, so because of this, Evelyn quickly became the focus of rumors in the community uh, when she was in her mid-teens. So keep in mind, she is not even 18 at this point. And oh. her parents are like, uh, yeah, her parents are encouraging her to like entice men, older men into buying her gifts and stuff. Not great. So, yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Um, so she had more expensive jewelry and furs than was considered proper, and she spent time in the company of much older men, um, at places out of town, such as the racetracks. Which so, I imagine also wasn't considered proper. Yeah, very much so. So in July of 1942, so Evelyn is 22 now, uh, Evelyn gave birth to a daughter named Heather, uh, this only managed to further fuel the rumors because she was an unmarried woman and we are in the 40s now. Yeah. So um, so Heather was allegedly put into the care of Evelyn's mother mainly. Um, so Evelyn didn't really play a huge role in raising her daughter. Evelyn gave birth the next summer to a stillborn baby. And then on September 5th, 1944, her son, Peter David White, was born. And you may be like, whoa, where's the name White coming from, right? You're confused. Oh, yeah. Right? I'm like, where's what's yeah. happening? Yeah, what's everyone's so... last name? Dick. Dick. M- McLean right now. It's McLean right now. Oh, it's okay. not Dick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Evelyn claimed that all of the children that she had conceived um, had been with her husband, a man stationed overseas with the last <laughs> name White. Uh-huh. How long had we been stationed overseas? Uh, not too sure. <laughs> uh, so later examinations of military records would fail to prove the existence of this man. But this was her story. Okay. She, she even, like, especially Peter, she gave Peter, like, his last name, whatever. So Evelyn returned home from the hospital after Peter's birth without the baby. Um, telling her mother that she had put him up for adoption because her father didn't want any more children in the house because Heather is already in the house, uh, her daughter. Oh, yes. And then the other one had been stillborn. Yeah. So uh, as of right now, it's Evelyn, her parents, and her daughter, Heather. Um, Peter has been put up for adoption. So in the summer of 1945, Evelyn met John Dick. Aha, Dick, funny. (laughs) A Russian immigrant <laughs> a Russian immigrant employed with the HSR as a streetcar driver. So he's with the Hamilton Street Railway as well. Oh, same job as her dad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so John Dick was 15 years older than Evelyn. So she is 25 at this point, I believe. And he's like 40? Yes. Yeah, and he's about 40. Okay. So Evelyn had informed John Dick that she was the recent widow of a Canadian naval officer named White who died in the Second World War. So she's really she's she's sticking. She to sent one. she sent her husband overseas and then killed him. <laughs> uh so Evelyn and Dick were engaged within a few weeks. So her mother even states that she did not know that this man existed until Evelyn showed up at the house and was like, I'm engaged. <laughs> hey. So Evelyn's parents obviously disapprove. He's a much older man. They didn't know about him. They never got to meet him. Uh, So they did not attend the small wedding um, that took place in October of 1945. So they have um, only known each other from the summer to October. Was he rich? 
Um, we're going to get to that. Because if he was rich, the parents should have been there. That was their whole goal this entire time. So their marriage confused many as John was unable to support Evelyn's extravagant lifestyle. <gasps> he was poor. Yeah. Um, as presumed, their marriage was rocky. Within five days, Evelyn was already having an affair with a name a man named Bill Bohazuk. It is believed she was also having other less serious affairs, but Bill was like the main like affair. Main where, squeeze. Yeah, it was believed she had feelings for him. Uh, so at this point, Evelyn's parents had separated and she was living in an apartment with her mother, Alexandra, and daughter, Heather. Um, but not her husband? Not her husband. Uh, so eventually, uh, it, it took a while, but eventually John convinced Evelyn to move in with him. Uh, she bought a house, so not him, she bought the house, um, and the two lived together for a couple months before John moved out and ended up living with his cousins. So because of this, John appealed to Evelyn's father, Donald McLean, uh, for help in making her, I'm going to put quotations around this because I understand he wants what he wants, but this wording is so gross, um, for help in making her, air quotations, behave like a respectable wife. Oh. Yeah. So, like, I understand you don't want her to cheat, but, like, that that feels like gross wording. Um, that that feels like more than just wanting her to not cheat, considering yeah. the times. Yeah. That feels like I want her to stay home and cook me dinner, and that's and, all I want her to do. Yeah, have and... a mattress strapped to her back and... Yeah, basically. So, her father refused. And... She was like, I don't even like you. <laughs> he was like, why are you in my house? Why have you shown up here? I, I barely know you. Um, so John threatened to inform the Hamilton Street Railway that Donald was stealing. Um, Evelyn had informed him of this um, family secret. I guess she trusted her very brief husband that she is she said cheating on with this secret. She said he's family now. If it's a family secret, <laughs> it means I can share it with him, right? Um, so obviously this upsets, um, Evelyn's father, so he threatens to kill John, which John wow. reports to the Hamilton police, of course. Because well, yeah, no, no shit. <laughs> that is a threat on his life. Which brings us to March 6, 1946. John Dick was last seen having lunch <gasps> at the last Windsor Hotel. Seen. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, John. Oh, dear John. Dear John? The Swifties are coming. Ah! <laughs> no, please. Um, So he doesn't show up to work. His cousins are like, what the fuck? Um, so on March, Saturday, Saturday, March 16th, a group of five children are hiking on the Hamilton Escarpment, or what locals call the mountain. Uh-oh. <laughs> Um, and they find what they believe to be is a body of a headless pig laying oh. part of the way down the escarpment. I'm going to take a gander here and say it wasn't a pig. Oh my goodness, you're so smart. Thanks. So this turned out to be the torso of an adult man. Uh, the head, arms, and legs were missing and nowhere to be found. Um, there, it, This is like 19... 46 at this point but there is a photo of this oh. 
one of my least favorite things when I'm researching these is when the photos of literal dead bodies just appear. And I'm like, I didn't ask. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've seen the torso. I've also seen the group of five boys all like arms around each other looking like they're like, fuck yeah, we just found a dead body. Yeah, so, uh, we we won't be putting that picture on our website. If you want that, you're no. gonna have to find that yourself. <laughs> if you're weird and you want to see that, that's that's that's, that's on you. you, dude. Um, so there were non-fatal bu- bullet wounds in the torso. Um, there was also a deep wound in the abdomen, which investigators believe displayed that someone had tried to cut the torso in two. So fun! You've already dismembered the body, and now you're trying to. Put it up into smaller pieces. So gross. Uh, so the cousin that John Dick had been living with uh, reported that he had been missing since March 6th. Uh, like I said, he was a bit confused. Um, he stated that he became worried when he heard reports of the torso and began to... My dog is assaulting me. Get going, stinker. What was okay. that? That was me slapping his butt. Oh. Um, so he stated that he became worried when he heard reports of the torso and began to suspect something awful may have happened to John, who had been living with him. Uh, his cousin, his cousin had originally believed that John had returned to the home where his wife and stepdaughter resided. Uh, so that's why he didn't like file any police reports or anything to state he was a missing person. This obviously led police to believe that they had found the remains of John Dick because his cousin's like, Dude, he's been missing for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you just found a torso. Yeah. I'm scared. <laughs> Have you ever seen this torso and John in the same room before? There was, like, a statement when I was researching saying that he ID'd the body. But I'm so confused. Just How do I ID a torso? I, maybe if they had, like, a recognizable tattoo. But this was, like, the 40s. I don't think they were really into tattoos at the time. No, I think tattoos were still considered like you were in like a gang or something. Yeah. Hey. That's he's just like, I know my cousin's nipples. That's <laughs> them. Oh, I've looked those suckers straight on before. <laughs> straight I know. Straight in the eye. So Evelyn was taken to the police headquarters as she is his wife um, Mm -hmm. for questioning as soon as the body was identified. When told the news, she responded by stating, don't look at me. I don't know anything about it. So. Okay. She know nothing, apparently. Or so she says. (gasps) So Evelyn then proceeded to tell the story of a poorly dressed Italian hitman who arrived at her door looking for John. He said he was going to fix him for messing around with his wife. He then left without telling her who he was. Hmm. Why they always got to blame the hitmen? So For real, the hitmen didn't do shit. Literally, if he did shit, I feel like people wouldn't know. That's what I'm saying. If you're a good hitman, nobody's going to know that you're a hitman. Literally, they'll be like, the mob's involved. And I'm like, if the mob was involved, I feel like we wouldn't know. Yeah. So while Evelyn was being questioned, police were investigating both her home and her father's home. They found charred human bones and bits of clothing from a Hamilton Street Railway uniform. They also found bullet holes in a pipe, a revolver, saws, and bloodstained shoes that almost certainly belonged to John Dick in Donald McLean's basement. So in her father's basement. Oh, dear. Yeah, so this is not really all coming together too great. 
Detectives also uncovered a car with bloodstained seats and a necktie that was identified to have belonged to John Dick. So days later, it was discovered that Evelyn had borrowed the vehicle from a like family friend, Bill. He said he had received the car back with blood covering the seat, the seat covers missing, and bloody clothing in the back. Girl, Evelyn... why wouldn't you remove that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So Evelyn had left a note explaining that apparently Heather, her daughter, had cut herself and made a mess. Okay. Yeah. So since we're in like we're in like the 1940s, um, they weren't able to do like a direct like ID match, obviously, on the blood or anything like, like yeah, that. Yeah, DNA testing. Um, but they were able to prove that the blood was the same type as John, which a lot of people have similar blood types, so like it's yeah not perfect but back then that's what they had i'm assuming it was a different blood type than the stepdaughter no one said anything about it what her blood type was so i'm assuming because they they were very like every source i went to was very insistent on that it was the same type as john yeah so i think they were like if they had the same blood type then they wouldn't care that it was the same as john's because it would match up to her story yeah so at this point, Evelyn told police um, she's changing her story, by the way. Oh, OK. Um, yeah. So she told police that a man had called her, told her that John had gotten a woman pregnant and that he was getting what was coming to him. The man then asked her to meet him so that he could borrow her like the car she was borrowing. Mm-hmm. Um, Evelyn explained that she met the man and he had a large sack with him. He told her it contained part of John. Oh, Yeah, so Evelyn then went on to say that she drove this man and his cargo to the dumping site. Police are like, okay, Evelyn, if this is your story, take us on the route that you, like, went on with this man. So she does. Mm -hmm. So while they're doing this, one asked if it was at all alarming to her that her husband's body was in the vehicle that she um, was driving. She said that she wasn't happy about his demise, but that it was a pretty mean trick to break up a home. Girl. Um, obviously referring to him, him getting uh, get- some other woman pregnant. Yeah. So police are like, this is a little strange. So they're like investigating the homes and everything. Uh, so in the attic of her father's home, they discover a suitcase. The suitcase contains a concrete encased body of an infant. Um, oh, my God. The, the son she put up for adoption, isn't it? Yeah, so this infant would later um, be proved to be um, Evelyn's son, Peter. So he wasn't put up for adoption? No, he wasn't. He was put up in the attic, apparently. Police are kind of getting quite uncomfortable with the way that Evelyn is responding to questions. Um, They're saying her demeanor is a little strange. And the way that she has an infant's corpse in the attic. Yeah, so they've deemed like everything she's doing quite inappropriate. So they have her, obviously, held. Um, Psychiatrists even go on to say that she had the maturity and intelligence of a 13-year-old girl. I'm assuming the traumatic childhood is what caused that. Yeah. I was going to say, if that's Um, around the time that her parents were like, go hang out with all these old men who are probably going to do shady shit to you. Yeah. Yeah. So investigators are a bit confused about the way that Evelyn's acting. They're not buying into any of the stories that she is telling. 
So Evelyn, uh, both of the McLeans and her, the man she was having an affair with, Bill, uh, were charged with the murder of Dick. Um, so John Dick and Evelyn and Bill were charged with infanticide. So did she know Bill um, when she had this kid? I found something suggesting that the affair was happening before, but I'm not sure. They okay. didn't really include how he was too connected. Um, her mother did like say at one point that she believed she had seen Evelyn with Bill before, but there was like no confirmation. Yeah, I was gonna say like, how are you gonna charge a man for infanticide when they just met? Yeah. Uh, so obviously her father uh, was also charged with robbing the Hamilton Street Railway uh, of thousands of dollars as well. Yeah. So Evelyn's attorneys moved to have her tried separately from Bill and her father in the hope that this would allow Evelyn to appear before the jury as like an attractive young woman, like seemingly incapable of murder because like, yeah. you put her beside the man that she was having an affair with or her father, it would change the story a bit. Mm-hmm. So the long series of trials would begin on October 7th, 1946 in Hamilton's Wentworth County Courthouse. So they have to do, obviously, the trial for Peter, uh, her son, and then also for John Dick as well. So Alexandra McLean, Evelyn's mother, agreed to testify for the crown against her daughter in return for immunity. I'd be pissed if my mom testified against me, but I understand. I'd be pissed if my daughter committed infanticide, kept the corpse in my attic, and then killed her husband and dealt with the body in my home, but... Yeah, that's true, too. (laughs) Um, So she stated that Evelyn had been absent from the house for a prolonged period on March 6th, the last day that John Dick had been seen. She also stated that she had asked Evelyn if something had happened to him, and Evelyn stated that he wouldn't be coming around anymore. She also testified that she had seen her husband, Donald McLean, up in the attic, sitting by, like, the suitcase where Peter's body was. And when she entered the attic, her husband told her to get the fuck out. Oh. So, great. Cool. Um, She also testified that her husband owned a handgun and a large butcher's knife. So... They have a lot of evidence, but technically the evidence that they have against Evelyn is mostly circumstantial. Mm-hmm. Um, but the jury the jury did still find her guilty of the murder of John Dick. The judge sentenced her to death, but her attorney successfully appealed. So Evelyn's case was taken over by someone who is apparently one of Hamilton's most famous lawyers because of this case oh god um john j robinet um so he's strongly suggested to the jury that there was a strong possibility that donald mclean her father had killed dick yeah um, like if especially if he was like blackmailing him and being like i'm gonna tell him yeah. that you're stealing from their vault like they have li- literally a police report saying that like he had threatened to kill john so it's also yeah. like we're in the 1940s we're in a time period we're still in a time period now but where it's not we're really believed that period. a woman we are where it's believed <laughs> that like a woman would be able to do this we live in a society we do live in a society women can't even commit murder apparently no we're too weak and stupid apparently so this time the jury found evelyn not guilty of killing john 
So they're okay. like, oh, you kind of make a good point. So in the trial for the murder of her baby, Peter, Robinette brought in a psychiatrist who testified that Evelyn had endured a traumatic childhood. And this is when they kind of come to the consensus that she had the emotional mentality of a 13-year-old. Okay. Yeah. So the jury found her guilty of a lesser charge. So they were like, it's not murder, but they found her guilty of the charge of manslaughter. And the judge sentenced her to life imprisonment. So she was charged for the death of Peter, but at this point, she's not charged for the death of John. Okay. So after being charged, because she loves her good little stories, Evelyn came up with a story that her father and Bill, the man she was having an affair with, had killed John. She even signed a formal statement stating that this was true. Donald McLean was charged with being an accessory to murder and sentenced to five years in prison and then received another five years for theft. Bill was cleared of all charges because Evelyn refused to testify at his trial, even though later she would claim that he had hired Italian killers to murder John Dick, um, which she signed another formal statement saying she wasn't lying about that as well. She loves to Um, sign papers. She loves to sign things to say she's not lying while she's lying. (laughs) so she then gave another story that bill had murdered the child and john dick as well oh goody so no one was ever actually charged like with the murder of john because well evelyn was but then they like yeah but then they cleared the charges and she's found not guilty so it's just her father who was um found to be an accessory to the murder Bill is cleared of all charges. Her mother is uh, gained immunity, and she only was uh, she only received charges for the death of Peter because she's just a woman and couldn't have killed a full grown man. Yeah, she could kill a baby, but not a full grown man. So Evelyn was um, paroled in 1958 after serving 11 years in Kingston Penitentiary. She assumed a new identity and completely vanished. She assumed a new identity and completely vanished. The RCMP respected this, of course, as they have to, um, and no information has ever been revealed as to where she went. Some believe she moved out west and married again. Uh, That's like the main idea is that she moved out west. I'm not sure. Um, So Evelyn was then pardoned in 1985 and her file was permanently sealed so everything's gone now yay um other than that uh a well-known yard song was written after her apparently it's well known i a yard song i did not know it was known um it goes a little like this i'm not gonna say (gasps) mel's gonna sing us a song no i'm not um so (laughs) you cut off his legs you cut off his arms you cut off his head how could you mrs dick how could you mrs dick Apparently that's well known. Um, not to me. I'll try um, to find I'll try to find a link on YouTube and see if I can put it on the website. If I can find the <laughs> if I can find the song. So then a band known as the Forgotten Rebels used these exact lyrics for a song that they named Evelyn Dick on one of their albums in 1989 as well. Uh, there are also multiple films about Evelyn. It's just a very sensationalized story, I guess. Um here in good old Ontario. But yeah, that's about it. Exciting. Oh, to kill people. I thought you were going to start singing Oh Canada. 
<laughs> no. no. <laughs> I was like, oh, get into it. She's feeling patriotic after this one. Yeah, something about a woman murderer just makes me feel happy to be Canadian. Yeah. Well, you know, she didn't do it. She didn't do it because she's just a woman and she was too weak and stupid. <laughs> I feel like she probably, like, this is just me theorizing. She was probably the one that fired the gun. But I feel like she was not the one that chopped up the body. Yeah. No, I think considering it was in her dad's house, I'm assuming the dad had something to do with, like, the disposal. Mm-hmm. I also, like, from photos think... that I've seen, she was a very petite woman. And mm-hmm. so I do feel like she would have difficulty yeah. cutting up a body. Because that yeah. shit has got to be difficult. I would imagine. There's, like, bones and stuff in there, so... Unless you know anatomy, how are you going to know where to cut properly without hitting the bones and making everything harder? Exactly. Exactly. And this is why and I would never cut up a body because I don't know where the bones connect and end. Don't cut off the feet. It's gross. Don't cut off the feet. It's just gross. It like, there's gross. no point. There is no point. Something so disrespectful about cutting off someone's feet. I can understand <laughs> the hands. Okay. You want to get rid of the fingerprints but you don't even you don't have to cut off the hand you can just like take the skin pads off of their fingers but like the feet yeah unless they have like a strange sized foot or a distinctive foot (laughs) a lot of people have those apparently um there's no point oh my god if i ever got murdered i think they'd have to cut my limbs off because of my tattoos this is why you get tattoos folks so that your limbs your get body, cut off when you're murdered. Your body is too recognizable. They'll be like, I can't kill this one. She's got tattoos. Gotta go find someone without tattoos. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. I have so many things I have to do today. My dog smells like pee. He needs a bath. Um, I need to do laundry. I need mm. to edit this episode. Yes, Gwen is editing I this have one to because I feel like crap. And we're recording so, on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, so everyone say thank you, Gwen. Thank you for your hard work. If I do a bad job, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> but If Gwen does a bad job, blame me. Um, I don't um, know if that's necessary. But What is in your mouth, mister? Would it be teeth? And a tongue? No, it would be a piece of one of your lunch containers. A piece of my lunch container. Do you have socks on the table? Um, he I... just keeps finding socks. <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say I don't think so, <laughs> but if he's finding them, I must. So apparently, I also have to go downstairs and get some socks. <laughs> okay, so in the Great Sock Massacre, I have managed to save three socks. My goodness, one sock. I'm sorry she was not saved. Uh-oh. What color was it? She was polka dot. Oh, that's fine. Those ones are old. Okay. Anyways, thank you everybody for listening. Um, We do have a new website. I believe Mel mentioned it at the beginning of the last episode. Uh, it's crypticchatterpodcast.com. So you can find all of our episode notes, transcripts, um, sources, all that stuff. I am caught up on transcripts, so they should all be up there. 
We also changed our social media. Um, so it's cryptic underscore chatter. And you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram. I don't think Mel's posted on Instagram yet, but I, I try to post on the Twitter once or twice a week. So Throwing me under the bus. Yeah, Mel, where's the effort? Where are our pictures? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I need everyone to know that I am on the max dose of my medication now so i'm hoping that it makes me more motivated it's okay because i feel so bad it's all right you know we all have everybody has those days everybody gets that way (laughs) um maybe i'll make some sort of like graphic once a week that we can post on all the social medias and then you can just fill in when you feel like it we'll see anyways thanks for listening um I was going to tell you that next week's exciting, but I don't know what I'm doing yet. I have a couple prepared, but I don't know which one I'm doing or if I'm going to research something new. I have nothing prepared, and that's why Gwen's editing, so that I can get some things prepared so that we don't record on Saturday again. Yeah, so hopefully we can, like, I don't know, record tomorrow or Monday or Tuesday or before Saturday. (laughs) Before we get end up in a time crunch. Yeah. To our many fans who are <laughs> many fans. patiently waiting. To the 19 to 22 year olds who live in either Ontario or Houston, Texas and identify as female. Sorry, guys. We are so sorry. We will do better. No, we won't. But we will try. I'm I'm trying so hard to keep us on top of things, but I also don't want to like pressure you into recording and researching when you aren't feeling like it. So like i said i'm hoping that my medication makes it better i'm sure it will golly gee she was in a rut but now that's okay she's medicated yay sometimes you have to get a higher dose of your medication to be less strange so sometimes you have to be on the max dose of your medication Anyway, enough about our meds. <laughs> Wait, did y'all know we're medicated? Did y'all know we're medicated? Um, if you made it this far, thank you. <laughs> thank you if for you, listening. If you didn't make it this far, what's your problem? Uh, if you didn't make it this far, why are you listening to this part? Did you yeah. skip? Did, go back. Freak. What the freak? Go, go listen back. to my story. Go listen to the hard work that I put in that took me <laughs> weeks how rude (laughs) well um we i think are all done chatting for today but uh yeah we will have another story for you guys another two stories sorry for you guys next week yes we will or we won't or we will there'll be at least one if mel gives up on me (laughs) i will just record all by myself (laughs) i'm trying to leave an a little bit of suspense oh sorry a little bit of suspense okay there's going to be one maybe two stories next week yeah okay 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 thanks for listening goodbye thanks bye